Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Do we say the worst is over? Back we go to our bad habits of borrowing and spending and living beyond our means and let the next generation pay the bill? Or do we say to ourselves, yes, because of our plan, things are getting better, but there is still a long way to go and there are big underlying problems we have to fix in our economy. More repairs, more cuts, more difficult decisions. That's the choice in 2014, to go on working through a plan that is delivering for Britain putting us back in control of our destiny with the security and peace of mind that brings, or squander what we've achieved and go back to economic ruin. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. Well, that was George Osborne, the UK Chancellor, back in 2014, promising more cuts, more austerity, because somehow that is better for the economy. So in the years that followed... He flatlined spending on social protection, on public services, reduced it for education, even though the population was increasing, and GDP growth wavered around 2%. So all that hardship for basically no reward. So today, why this preoccupation with government living within their means? What does that actually mean? And what happens when they don't? That's this week on the Debunking Economics podcast. Well, austerity, it's good for the soul, isn't it? I mean, you can't really be making progress unless you are suffering. You know the old expression, no gain without pain, even if the people feeling the pain are different to those enjoying the gain, uh, which is often the way. Now, Britain has mastered austerity, but they are not alone. Maybe not from their choosing, but Greece has done it, Italy in fact, the EU almost insists on it, doesn't it? One of the benefits of being in the Eurozone. So, Steve, the UK government, here's the interesting thing, is now engaged in massive spending, over £1.1 trillion the last financial year. That is over 45% of GDP. And yet it feels like austerity because no government services seem to be working. Taxes are highest they've ever been. And things are being cut rather than anything new being developed. So we've got this strange situation of high-spending austerity. <laughs> How the hell do they manage that? Well, because austerity, for a start, Mark Bly puts it down beautifully. As I've seen in one of his book titles, Austerity, the History of a Bad Idea. And when you try to do something which is silly, it tends not to work. So uh, if you, and my, my favourite reference here is the American economic data because they have data on both private debt and uh, unemployment and government debt going back to 1830, 1790, including government debt. And when you take a look at it, every time uh, that they, the, the American 
government has enforced a period of substantial austerity, there has been a great depression or a great recession on the other side of that. Hmm. So this, if, if the whole idea about it is to save, you know, you know quoting Cameron here, uh, Lord Cameron, isn't he now? Lord yes. Cameron, foreign minister. What a travesty of democracy oh. that was. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so Lord Cameron, uh, foreign minister, when he was prime minister after being elected, which, of course, he must admit that's a rarity for Tory prime minister. It's a novel days. way of doing things, uh, isn't it? Democracy. Novel way of getting into power by being elected. Yeah. yeah. Uh, he said it was saving for a rainy day. Mm. And in fact, I've seen just recently, he put the same argument about COVID. If we hadn't saved, we wouldn't have the money to have paid for what we did during COVID, which was, as we know, uh, a total catastrophe. Uh, what, 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 what they did during COVID was, of course, throw lots of parties at number 10 Downing Street, which, of course, did a huge amount for the virus. But, they, mean, didn't, sorry, I mean, they, but they didn't save that. I mean, that's the thing, isn't it? Well, I mean, they did save, I guess, but, but well, they were still in debt, so they were in slightly less debt than they would have been. But still, yeah. uh, $1.1 1. 1 being spent by the government even yeah, now. Yeah. Well, that, that, that's because when you do austerity, the private sector goes crazy on private borrowing. That's the usual, usual um, sequence of events. You then have a financial crash, which, which requires the government to spend lots of money. Mm. So that, that is the basic pattern you can find in the American data. Uh, and of the, th the three major periods that gave that outcome, there's actually four, uh, but the, the three major ones, are the, what's called the Panic of 1837, the Great Depression, and the Great Recession. And if you take a look at the data about what was the government doing prior to each of those events, it was, and I quote David Cameron again, saving for a rainy day. So in the 18, 1837 crisis, uh, the government drove its debt levels down to zero. And that should have meant absolutely fantastic outcome. And it was. It was the worst crisis in the history of capitalism up to that point. Then there's 1870, which I'll pass over because it wasn't quite as major as the others. The Great Depression during the entire 1920s, the president uh, of America, Calvin Coolidge, ran a surplus. So he actually succeeded in driving government down, debt down, ran a surplus of 1% of GDP every year. And by the end of it, government debt had fallen from about 30% of GDP to about 15%. And he said, this must be continued. This is the, this is the foundation of our prosperity. Then we had the Great Depression. Yeah. Well, let me from and, that time, had, before yeah. we get on to beyond the, and we'll go back to your, yeah. your timeline, but just uh, yeah. a, a, from that snap in time, uh, in the Times, Keynes and Hayek exchanged letters in the Times in 1932. And Keynes, of course, was arguing how cutting spending cut consumption, which cut demand, which cut production, which cut yeah. jobs and so yeah. on. Hayek's response, yeah. signed with a bunch of other economists, was this. We are of the opinion that many of the troubles of the world at the present time are due to imprudent borrowing and spending on the part of public authorities who do not desire to see a renewal. And we do not desire to see a renewal of such practice. At best, they mortgage the budgets of the future and they tend to drive up the rate of interest. Uh, we're not really quite sure why, but anyway, a process which is surely particularly undesirable at this juncture when the revival of the supply of capital to private industry is admittedly an agent necessity. The depression has abundantly shown that the existence of public debt on a large scale imposes frictions and obstacles to readjustments very much greater than the frictions and obstacles imposed by the existence of private debt. So anyone reading that? Could oh, easily... that's wonderful! Can I? I definitely want a copy of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. Oh, any, anyone, but anyone reading that could easily conclude: work. Well, if we have massive debt now, so does everybody else, and interest rates are shooting yeah. up. So maybe Hayek and his cronies were right. And this is the problem. This is this is this is the way conventional economists think about money, and have always thought about money. And the trouble is, the public 
is unaware of the, the economists are not experts on money. When you look at the reasoning they've done right from going right back to Jean-Baptiste Say in the 18, 1820s and, and right forward to today and then in the, in, the, in the 2020s, they have uniformly treated government debt as, uh, as having to borrow from the private sector. Mm. That's their vision of it. Now, they, and, and they, they, in that statement, public debt is, is dangerous, private debt is not is the exact opposite of what happens. It's, 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 this is the economics profession, in my opinion, and I've got a lot of information to back this on, is like having a bunch of tallmake astronomers telling you how to, how, telling Elon Musk how to fly to Mars. They have no idea of what space travel is about. They don't have any idea of the structure of the solar system, let alone the universe. And yet, they, 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 Musk would be told to, you know, work out his epicycles before he uh, before he lights up the starship uh, for flight to Mars. So the, the reason this this is this is crazy is that debt, financial obligations are like a seesaw. If one side of the seesaw is up, the other side, by necessity, is down. There is no way to have both sides of a seesaw up at the same time. Mm. Uh, but the thinking which neoclassical economists have is like looking at one half of the seesaw and saying, oh, that half should be on the ground. And the other side can do whatever it likes. Well, the other, if one's on the ground, the other's in the air. Sorry, there's no choice. You yeah, cannot well, have one without the other. But, I mean, one can do more good than the other, though, can't they? So, I mean, so for example, if we go yeah, back and it's to... the government. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And, we, and it's the government side, isn't it? I mean, that was going to be my point. So if we go back to the 80s, it sort of seemed clear, didn't it? Because we thought, you know, the government spent money, you know, pounds spent by the government had, a, had a, some sort of multiplier effect because it would create more jobs and you'd add more than a pound that the government spent to GDP ultimately. And so therefore, if you cut spending, you reduce GDP by more than the amount that you, you cut government spending. But then things changed, didn't they? The thinking became, well, if you cut spending, you're going to control inflation. So the central bank is going to lower interest rates. That means households have more money. That's the logic. And, and also, that, that's what's part of the logic. Another part of the logic, that there's only a certain amount of money available, was what's called the, the, the uh, model of loanable funds. And so if the, if the government borrows from that money, there's less money for the private sector to borrow, and therefore government spending crowds out private spending. And that's, those are the sorts of arguments you can find in much more technical terms scattered throughout the economic literature and quite, quite dominant in the economic literature. And as I'm saying, pe because people believe economists are experts on money, that has become the public thinking about it as well. And in the same way that in the, the public used to think that the Earth was the centre of the universe, and only after Galileo and Copernicus and Kepler and, and Newton and Tycho Brahe and a you know, range of other geniuses and paradigm breakers who understood the, the data came back and said, no, in fact, it's not that the Earth is the centre and everything rotates around us. We're spinning on our axis as we, as we orbit the sun. And now anybody who believes that the Earth is the centre of the universe belongs in a padded cell. Or the Conservative Party. I'm sure there's a few people. Oh, well, that's true. Yeah, sorry. GB News viewers. No, but, yeah. I've forgotten about that other option, yeah. But, the, um, but I mean, that crowding... With or without champagne. The, the crowding out the argument. The, I mean, there is, there is... I mean, in some cases, that will be the case, though, won't there? So the government could step in in an area where the private sector uh, could do quite well. 
and so uh, and so you know and, and by the by the government doing that they've stopped an investor investing in something that perhaps could have existed just in the private sector i mean there will be cases where that happens i'm being quite sarcastic this morning because i've been reading too much neoclassical economics in the last few days um but let, let's let's say some points where it is true that government spending uh, would be a relatively bad idea. For example, the private sector doesn't go to war. Uh, it may encourage people to go to war, the sections of the private sector that make a large amount of money out of wars, mm. but the private sector itself doesn't have armies. So government spending on wars, you know, look at the Vietnam War, the Afghanistan War, the Iraq War, they were terrible, terrible uses of the government's, and I'm going to blow, blow the secret there, the government's capacity to create money. Uh, so there were, the, the government's been, been spent on extremely bad things. The war on drugs in America cost large amounts of government money. There are things, uh, and, and just at a much more mundane level, I, as a student, I was delighted when the University of Sydney stopped uh, having only the, the uh, publicly funded uh, food outlets and allowed pri private sector uh, groups to come in, and you suddenly went from slosh to uh, Vietnamese food, which was fantastic. Mm. Vietnamese food because there were so many refugees from the war in Vietnam in Australia at the time. But so there are things where the government does very badly and you want the private sector to do it. On the other hand, there are things where the private sector does not do at all and you want the government to do that. And there's a balance and this is what is missing. And that's why I come back to the seesaw analogy. Um, there's a balance of activities. And if one doesn't do its bit, then the other doesn't have a capacity to do its on top of that. Um, but the real, the real reason why that's a crazy, crazy, crazy idea is that, and this is something you can only understand if you understand accounting, and accounting is like a telescope in, in astronomy. It tells you what is what is possible and what is not possible. Mm. <clears throat> Pardon me. Government deficits create money. Yeah, let's come and, and, and I want to focus on that in the second part of this podcast. Yeah. And just, and yeah, let's sure. just, just explore about where the government should be and shouldn't be in, in the first part. So because there is the danger, isn't there, that you could argue... Well, the government should be spending money on it on on almost everything. So, health and education and defence, uh, you know, they've got to be there. Then you could say, well, okay, transport, utilities, housing. But I mean, if the government did all of all of all of that, right. then you're only leaving a small slice of work for the private sector. You know, we'll be making breakfast cereal and cars and stuff, for which you can actually buy cheaper from overseas anyway in the UK. So, I mean, there's this is that you know yeah. you can you can have some sympathy for this crowding out argument if if basically the public sector is is growing and taking over so much more of you know of our everyday well, and, life. And this, yeah, and this is this is the the idea of balance again, and uh, and I think Western philosophy is very badly uh, equipped for thinking about things in terms of a balance of, of opposing forces. Um, you have the you know you, you have people who are totally pro government ownership of everything. You've still got your old fashioned socialist around, despite the experience of Russia which used to be called the Soviet Union. Uh, mm. And you have total free market nutcases like the son of Milton Friedman and some people I'm seeing on Twitter these days, amazingly enough, uh, who believe the government should be virtually driven down to zero. Uh, so there's those two extremes are part of Western philosophy and one is arguing at the other. The, the Eastern philosophy, which is more the idea of yin and yang, you know, the, the, you know, those two teardrops that intersect, intersect, uh, interlock with each other perfectly, uh, balance. And that is the, there is a there is a balance for the two, and in fact the balance is probably about the level that the European countries and the UK in general had before this turn to austerity occurred. Yeah. And if you try to push the balance too far in the direction of the 
private sector doing everything, you end up, as you said earlier, reducing GDP. So you reduce debt but not the debt ratio, and you end up causing uh, catastrophes, which the private sector has to pay for, goes into debt over, and you end up with more private and more government public debt at the, at the, the same, same time, time, which is, where which we're, is the which opposite is, of your intention. Yeah, which is sort of where we found ourselves, and how do we get that balance back again? Because the consequences that we faced from those uh, 10 or 15 years or more, because it's still going on, of austerity, have been quite pronounced. Let me give you a couple of examples. So from the British Medical Journal in 2021, uh, UK austerity since 2020, uh, 2010 sorry, uh, has been linked to tens of thousands more deaths than expected. Basically, the the slowdown in life expectancy improvement in Britain has coincided with government spending constraints on health and social care since 2010. So, um, you know, if if the fear was too much government spending would cause inflation... That doesn't apply in the health sector, does it? So they might as well spend. You know, there's, if, the, if the big fear is, well, we don't want to put money into health because we don't want to increase government spending because we think that will increase uh, inflation. I mean, that was an argument that was given by the government for not pushing up wages for doctors and nurses because they said, you know, that will cause inflation, which is a curious thing, isn't it? Because if you pay a doctor or a nurse working for the NHS more, that might pass on more costs for the government. But it's not going to cause inflation, is it? Because there's no increase in costs down the line because you don't pay the NHS. The service which is provided is free. So that argument about wage push inflation doesn't apply in that case. So this idea, you know, so in other words, what are the constraints really on on spending in the health, in the health sector? You know, we know that one of the consequences is more people die. And that is now statistically proven by the British Medical Journal. And also more doctors and nurses look for jobs overseas. I mean, I mm. coming from Australia, as you, you'd be aware, uh, if, even if you're working for a in a government hospital, the pay is quite, you know, quite healthy, thanks very much. It makes up for the six hours, six years of training you do, the several years of 24 hours on call that you have to do for, for emergency services and so on to get registered inside the medical hospital system. And I expected the same thing applied in the UK. And then I uh, went out with a, a woman whose uh, brother was a doctor and she corrected my misapprehension on the pay. In the, and I was just shocked. And my attitude, why would anybody go through six years of being a student, three years of being on call at terribly, relatively low wages for the effort you've done to finally come out the other side and get what is actually a pretty lousy income? Mm. And what's now happening, of course, Britain is now training doctors and nurses who are looking for jobs overseas. Yeah. So it, it, is, it is undermining the infrastructure of the economy and the society and the infrastructure of what the government should pay attention to. Well, I mean, that's an example, isn't it, of how, you know, you you can spend money in one area but not spend enough in another and you pay the consequences for it. So another example uh, from the Journal of Urban Economics in January 2022. I hope you're appreciating how much research has gone into this particular week's edition. You've already already worked (laughs) on your brownie points with that first one. I want a copy of that letter. I'll get it to you. So this is, uh, yeah, Journal of Urban Economics. And this is the imbalance another impact of an austerity. So they used a panel of 313 community safety partnership areas, whatever they are, in England and Wales, and show that for each £100 loss per working age adult, so we decrease the, their welfare or their, their income by £100 for each adult, racially or religiously motivated crimes rose by approximately 5 to 6%. This is in 2013 to 2015. So austerity and welfare cuts drives hate crime. 
And we're seeing a lot of that in the UK now. So you you could increase welfare or you could pay for more police to try and uh, crack down on that hate crime. Take your pick. Mm-hmm. And the same, just let's correct one particular regular misapprehension. The same thing applied in Germany before the rise of the Nazis, uh, because it wasn't uh, the Weimar Republic inflation uh, and uh, that caused the, uh, caused the rise of the Nazis. It was austerity after that inflation. And the austerity led to a rise of hate crimes in, in Germany, which, of course, was the perfect vehicle for the rise of the Nazi mm. party. Yeah, so, same thing. Uh, and the, and so, yeah. I mean, we are we going the same way right now? Yeah, that is a bit of a worry, mm. isn't it? So, look, I would ha- actually recommend, on that note, by the way, just somebody interjecting here, mm. I'd recommend people read the, uh, the, the uh, a substack for Dugold Lamont. That's D O U G A L D Lamont, L A M O N T. He's done a wonderful piece during the history of the, ri- the rise of the Nazi party relative to the Weimar Republic and relative to Austria after it. Very good piece of reading. Right. Okay. So how does the government pay uh, rather than face austerity? We've sort of touched on it before about how governments create money, but we'll look at it again, uh, perhaps in a bit more detail and in a different direction. We'll do that in just a second on the Debunking Economics podcast. Me and Steve Keen, back in a moment. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Debunking Economics Podcast with Steve Keen and Phil Dobby. So we're looking at austerity this week, uh, the impact that it's had, why governments are so insistent on spending less and less because they want us to suffer, basically, so that they can show that they're in control. I'm sure that's part of it. But I mean, the alternative is, of course, that governments spend more. We do have the problem that they are spending more now, but we're still we're still taxing more. So we have austerity in a different way. And I guess that's Steve, you can have austerity in one of two ways, can't you? Either you cut government spending or you increase taxes. And actually, even in the austerity brigade, I mean, there are people who say that, you know, the, the, the bad way of dealing with austerity uh, is through tax increases. So Alberto Alicia is an Italian economist who wrote a book, Austerity, When It Works and When It Doesn't. I don't think it was a bestseller. Uh, his conclusion was... <laughs> I know him, by the way. Oh, do you? All right, okay. Uh, his uh, as, as, we've, we've exchanged emails. You've exchanged emails with everyone, haven't you? So what's your take on this guy then? So, <laughs> so he says, austerity achieved through tax increases tends to trigger recessions and worsens a, a country's debt load, whereas austerity accomplished through government spending cuts has only a limited impact on economic output. So actually, he's saying on the one thing, it's bad. On one way, it's bad. The other way, well, it's really not making that much difference. I'm not going to make my reference point. Here's the logic, I'm afraid. So I'll start with a different one. 
Okay, so, I mean, good. I've, I've read that. I've read that book, and I'm not particularly impressed by it. But it, no, let's not talk about work that I think is badly founded. You, you, this, my perspective on government money, government spending, uh, has always been on the you know the pro government spending rather than anti. So I've got to put that on the table to begin with. But it became much much stronger when I when I finally worked out the accounting of government spending, and it is extremely easy to do with my software Minsky. It's why I invented Minsky. But if you look at what the, what the, what would we do when we borrow money, the private sector borrows, we have to commit to a loan from a private bank, and the bank then puts that money in our bank account. So what happens is we we don't actually gain in terms of any our net financial worth. We've got if you borrow a million dollars to buy a house, your debt has gone up by a million dollars, and the money you have has gone up by a million dollars, which you then hand over to the person you're buying the house from. So you end up with a hundred million million dollars in debt and a house. That's yeah. that's the arrangement for the private sector doing it. Then to hang on to that house, you have to pay the interest on that house back to the bank. And the bank is charging you 5% interest, which is low these days now for a mortgage, charging you 5%. You've got to pay 50,000 pounds each year to the bank plus a part of the principal. So let's say you're paying 60,000 pounds uh, a year, which would actually not get you there for a hell of a long time. But well, let's say a hundred thousand. So you're paying fifty thousand in interest and fifty thousand on the yeah, principal. Yeah, you you're sort of like talking about Japanese situation where the mortgage gets passed on to your grandkids, basically. And ultimately, but I'm, let's let's see if I used a hundred thousand pounds, you borrowed a million pounds. Okay, so you've got a million pounds in cash or money in your bank account. You have a million pounds in debt to the bank. You then transfer the million pounds to the vendor of the house. You now have a house and no money in your account. But you now have to pay fifty thousand pounds in interest per year to cover the interest payments, and say fifty thousand on the principal, which would get you to repay the loan in, in something of the order of twelve to fifteen years, given compound. The fact yep. that you're paying down the principal, so you've got to pay interest, blah blah blah. That's a reasonable a, a setting. So, and that's the, but the assumption is well, in everyone's mind that's exactly the way governments work as well, isn't it? But no, but hang on, it's, it's what you, the only way you can do that. You've got to earn hundred thousand pounds a year plus extra mm. to be able to do that. So if you've got you know your expenses are another fifty thousand to do that, you've got to be earning one hundred and fifty thousand pounds per year, and if you don't manage to do it, you will fall behind on the payments. Uh, the interest you don't pay gets added to the debt you owe, and you can be declared bankrupt and thrown out of your house. Now that is the perspective individuals have quite rightly about going into private debt, and the reason we do it, and we can come back to this later on another podcast, is because they hope the house is going to increase in value, hmm. and they can sell it for one and a half million and get out before all of this disastrous potential outcomes occurs. Now, what people do, and this is quite understandable, they apply the same logic to every 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 other entity in society, including the government. I think the government's in the same situation. If the government doesn't pay its debt down or the government doesn't make uh, enough, earn enough money through taxation, uh, taxing more than it spends, ultimately the government's going to go bankrupt. Yeah. And that's the thing everybody has. And it is similar to thinking uh, that the planets, uh, the sun has to obey the same laws the sun, that the sun does. Yeah, we're not thinking systemically, and that's so, why systemic thinking is absolutely essential to understand this. And once you do, austerity is a stupid idea. We've covered this the, the mechanics of this quite a few times, but I'm just interested in yeah. what the capacity is. At what at what point could potentially the system break? So the government is in debt; it issues more and more bonds. Uh, if they don't get bought by the central bank. Then you know basically. I mean, they get bought initially by obviously by commercial banks, and they replace what's sitting in their uh, in their reserves. 
if they don't then get bought by the central bank, which we've been seeing through quantitative easing, then it's not adding to the money supply in any way, is it? I mean, banks are replacing cash in their reserves for government bonds. They might sell them to the secondary market. If they do that, that's still not adding to the money supplies. It's basically diverting investments from other assets like shares into into government bonds. So the government is is increasing its spending, but it's not increasing the money supply. Have I got that right? No, because you've left out the deficit in the first place. And, uh, and, and this is the important point, that the deficit itself creates money. And that's why I prefer to call it a fiat. And this is why the accounting is so. If you don't, if you don't get the accounting right, you're going to make a mistake in your argument at some point. Right. So I spend um, a, so, so I so I spend a billion. I, 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 the government spends a billion pounds in deficit. Uh, then that gets exchanged for a billion pounds in in reserves in in central banks. So there is, and the, also a billion pounds in people's private bank accounts. So that's what I meant. Yeah. Sorry. There, yeah. There is. I, I got it. Okay. Forget the central. I said the central bank. Yes. Yeah, it's it's, 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 it's a added money deposit. Yeah. 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 Okay. Now, now that okay. Now, and, and I've seen like some some monetary reformers. There's a bunch of Canadians I've, I've, I've ceased talking to on this front because they simply can't get their heads around this logic. Uh, when when the government uh, if you start off from absolutely zero, so, you know, nobody having any money whatsoever, uh, uh, you you find the mechanics of government spending create part of the money supply. Government spending in excess of, of, of taxation creates fiat money. And then that fiat money is what enables economic activity to take place amongst the rest of us. So when you have a government which says, I'm going to tax more than I spend, you'll have a government saying, I'm going to destroy fiat money. And that's going to make the economy work better. Right. And it, it, it is it is incomplete thinking about the accounting of the whole of the, the the way in which money creation occurs. So if somebody tells you austerity is a good idea, you're saying, "Oh, so destroying destroying money is a good idea." Is right. It- so the so the alternative is that you create money. So, but but how much is too much? So if you if if the government was to say, "Well, okay, uh, rather than spending one point one trillion." Uh, which is what they spent last year, they say, well, okay, you know what? Let's spend two trillion pounds. Uh, and so all of a sudden they're creating two trillion. If that, if, if that is all surplus to what they're getting in in tax, that would, well, we'll say, you know, say one and a half trillion of it is, is surplus to their tax intake. That's one and a half trillion extra money created yeah. into the economy. Surely that's a bad thing, isn't it? Well, it, 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 yes, it's a bad thing, and it's not 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 normally done. We, we've just been through an experiment where this happened, by the way, and this is why you you hope people learn from experience. But what what I learned from history is people don't learn from experience, and that is that the the, the deficit under during COVID went up to thirty percent of GDP. Mm. Okay. Now, first of all, but then central the banks from? bought central banks bought a chunk of that. Only only a small amount, as it turns out. The bonds were bought because the, when you look at the mechanics, of the government has spends has a deficit it goes from one percent of GDP deficit to thirty percent in a year, which is pretty much what happened uh, in in the COVID situation. It creates that twenty nine percent of GDP extra money. And that is that that because that money is created on the on the deposit account kind. It's also created on the which is a liability of the private banks. It's also created in reserve, which are an asset of the private banks. And because bonds pay a higher rate of interest than reserves do, when the government then after the event issues bonds to, to cover that, uh, the the private banks have this additional twenty nine percent of GDP amount of funds in their reserves, which they happily allocate from a low interest earning um, asset, which the reserves became after 
the global financial crisis before they earned nothing at all from a low one to a high one with the bonds. Mm. So the transfer is almost automatic. Uh, it'd be a, it's a no-brainer until recent interest rate rises by central banks, I better add, a no-brainer for, bond, for that bond, for that swap to be done. So each, each individual deficit creates the funds that enable the bonds that are issued for that deficit to be financed. And also, and this is the important point that my Canadian friends can't get their heads around, over time, each, each time the government runs a deficit and then issues bonds to cover it, wherever those bonds end up, the central bank can then buy those bonds back to enable the uh, new ones to be purchased if that is necessary. So the mechanics mean there is never a chance that the bond sales will not go ahead. And the idea that bond vigilantes exist, people who refuse to buy bonds no matter what, or, or that there'd be a government would have to declare bankruptcy when it's issuing uh, bonds denominated in its own currency, are simply failing to understand accounting. But I mean, this the, is why, uh, but their argument yeah, is there's just too many of them. So they're 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 saying, well, okay, where's, where where do we, you know, like a lot of people, I guess, they're saying, well, where do you draw the line? Can you can you just keep on issuing government debt uh, and not expect there to be consequences? Well, in fact, the best example of that is Japan. Now, I don't like what the Japanese have done. And this this comes back to that letter you discovered, that marvelous letter I've got to get a copy of, uh, is that there is a limitless capacity for the government to issue issue its own bond, issue debt and buy its own debt. And that's what's happened in the, in the, uh, in the Japanese case. Mm. But the, what they're, the problem they're, they're ignoring, they're getting wrong, is private debt. And so what has caused Japan to go from pretty much almost 0% of GDP government debt to close to 300% of GDP government debt now is a private debt bubble that preceded the growth of government debt, which they called it, they literally, Japanese called the 1980s the bubble economy years, 1980 to 1990, enormous increase in private debt. That's what caused the bubble. The decline in private debt is what caused the crash. They haven't addressed it directly, but as they've been doing all this, uh, pushing government debt from zero, pretty much zero to 300% of GDP, across the same time period, private debt has gone from 225% of GDP to 170% of GDP, which puts it in the same ballpark as most of the other uh, advanced nations now. Most advanced nations are carrying a private debt level of about 170% of GDP. It is precisely the, the fact that that letter you quoted shows that economists have it asked about tit to use the technical term uh, they are they are saying private debt not a problem and government debt is it's the other way around private debt is a problem and government debt is not so it, the idea though that you, at some point you're going to hit a point where there's just no one buying those bonds because there's too many of them your answer to that is well, the central bank will always buy them. My answer is them. Japan, but <laughs> yeah, but yeah, and, and the, and the central bank test case, and the, and the central bank just buys them up. So, yeah. and but how long can that go on for? So the UK indefinitely. The, the, when you look at the accounting, it's the answer is indefinitely. Right, uh, government spends a trillion pounds. That's a trillion in surplus. So that's a, a, in deficit. Uh, sorry, in, so in, yeah, deficit, in deficit. Yeah. So yeah. it's a trillion pounds, which is uh, which which goes into the economy. That's that's new money. It gets uh, it, it gets absorbed by uh, in the reserves of um, commercial banks, but maybe there's not enough reserves in commercial banks. So then the the central bank says, "Don't worry about that. We're going to buy most of those shares and we'll put it on our balance sheet." Does that act change the amount of money in uh, supply in any way whatsoever? No. 
because the money was created when the government created that debt. Money was created by running the deficit. Right. Uh, and the money is also created when the government pays interest on right. the deficit. So in that case, uh, it really way- so it really doesn't matter then, does it? The size of that uh, that balance sheet by the central bank, it is just them soaking up uh, a, yeah, a lack it's, of it's lack a of demand. Right. It's and there is that, and, that would, and yeah. they would do that because they're trying to control interest rates. Because if there's too many, well, it depends whether you argue actually that uh, the supply of bonds will change the, the interest rates. Some people say it's pretty marginal, actually. If you had twice as many bonds, would the amount, would the yield on those bonds change a great deal? And it would if the only thing you could do is buy bonds. But of course, it's just one of many financial instruments, isn't it? But I mean, it would have some impact on the, on, on the yield on those bonds. The, you, know, the, the, you, you see that when, when the central bank sets a target interest rate, it then has a, a, a buffer either side of that, and it will buy and sell bonds either side mm. in, the, in what they call the open market operations to try to maintain that price level. So, again, the, the central bank can control the rate of interest um, for on, on its own, on government bonds, and then that is used as a reference by the private banking system. So, so, so but, could the government as well? The- yeah, so could the government as well? Though, couldn't they? Because so, we've got. Um, I mean, the, the argument that we're hearing a lot, and and, and obviously, you know, because this, um, you know, because this is the way governments like us to think, is that uh, because interest rates are so high now, we've got to re- reduce government debt because the government is paying such a high amount of interest on the money that it is uh, it's borrowing. And so a greater part of government money, you know, this is where we get that argument. This is future generations are going to be paying for the debt that we're incurring now. But, it, but that doesn't matter, does it, in a way, because it's it's still government money. You just borrow more money to pay the pay the interest on your... Well, the, it's, and the it's, government is creating the money by running it. When the government runs a, runs a deficit, uh, and, and that, in that, it, what it's doing, it's creating fiat money. When mm. it pays interest on the de- on the bonds that are owned by the private sector, it's creating more fiat money. But that yep. fiat money is going to the financial sector specifically, rather than going to the general economy. So all these all these things are simply an exercise in accounting. And yeah. the best answer to the whole argument about you know government can't, the government shouldn't have too much debt is okay. Let the central bank buy it all. Because, again, in the accounting, if the government issued a, you know, a 10 times GDP as a, as a debt, which would be crazy, but let's use one of the crazy examples there. In terms of financing, if the central bank then bought those bonds, it has a limitless capacity to do that in the system. It's the buffer. It could do it. There'd be no need to borrow to take any money out of the private sector. In fact, what's happening is that spending is putting money into the private sector. Too much money in that case, for sure. But it's not a case of taking money from, it's putting money into. And, and, it, and, hmm. and the, that's partially, when you see people criticising government spending, they get those two mixed up. They'll alternate from one wrong argument to another wrong argument as they try to defend the, the arguments for austerity. And if the concern was that, you know, say the, the central bank had set interest rates at 6% or or 10%, whatever, something crazy. And there's a concern that the government then is having to pay 10% on its on its borrowings. Uh, that, um, and so it creates that money, and that money created is going into the financial sector. So all of a sudden, new money is being created to go into the financial sector. If there's a concern that that might actually be a bad thing, and you'd ha- let's hope there would. There's no reason, if the cent- central bank's interest rate is 6%, uh, is 10%, say, there's no reason that the government should have to say, well, we're going to pay 10% on the new bonds that we issue because the banks have to buy them anyway. Couldn't they just say, well, okay, that might be the central bank's interest rate, but we're only going to pay half a percent because take it or leave yeah. it. Oh, sorry, you've got to take it because you've got to meet these reserve requirements. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the and, and the, in terms of bond purchases, the same thing applies in bond purchases for primary dealers and so on. So, yeah, this is all storm in a teacup. Um, worries about the nature of, of, of the accounting of government money. When you sit down and do the accounting, there is no problem whatsoever in a government issuing too much money for its, for, uh, you know, it will never, it creates the money. It's not borrowing it from anybody. It's creating the money when it does all this and spending in excess in taxation, which is why I prefer to call it fiat rather than deficit when the, when the government spending exceeds taxation. That's creating fiat money. It can do too much of it, but it's never going to be a, 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 a burdening itself or the private sector in doing so. Um, so it is just you know, people who don't understand accounting telling us how to do money. And that's what mainstream economists are, which is why I want to get hold of that letter as soon as I can and have a lot of fun with it. <laughs> All right, okay. Well, I'm glad I found that for you. So in conclusion then, really, uh, the only concern is, uh, so the, 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 you know, the mechanics work. The question is, you know, how far do you use it? And at what point does it become the, the situation where the government has created so much money, it's flooding the economy and it is creating uh, inflation. It is starting to distort the system. And that is going to depend on what they spend the money on. So a lot of things that are equated to austerity, you could spend money, you could spend a lot more money on fixing up the National Health Service. And it would have no inflationary effect whatsoever. It would just make people healthier. There's uh, improve the roads and the rail as well, and make none of the, exactly, more exactly. Yeah. All, all they would do would be increase the productivity of the country without uh, without creating an inflationary. And, and impact. this comes back to the to this to the class effect of what's going on here. Mm. Rupert Murdoch. Uh, doesn't and, and and Richard Branson don't wait in public uh, health systems to get their, their 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 pulse checked. Okay, if there's less government spending, they can buy the buy a hospital for themselves. It's the poor who cop the the brunt of austerity. It ends up increasing class divides, and that's where a lot of that racial tension you spoke about comes from. Hmm. So it is actually a very very destructive idea. Uh, the government there is a safety net for the poor, not for the rich. And this argument against government spending doesn't affect the rich, but it does affect the poor. So you end up with having a class a class clash coming out of it and this is a recipe for depressions and social conflict and social breakdown not building a state not not saving for a rainy day and look where we are well look let me finish this impeccably researched podcast if i do say so myself <laughs> uh, i want to leave you with a quote from oscar wilde who said anyone who lives within their means suffers from a lack of imagination what a, <laughs> what a great chancellor he would have made uh, that's it for this week thanks steve Welcome, mate. The Debunking Economics Podcast. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.